Hey everybody, welcome back to the wow, this is a great intro. I already lost my train of thought. Welcome back to the podcast where I lose my train of thought. Today is the something episode of some podcast that we're on. Uh, I am AJ here with Harrison. This is a great intro. This is a great intro. I believe, I believe taps and patience and episode 14 to kind of fill in the gaps. So I was going to say something about being sick for the last two weeks, and I'm also going to use that as my excuse for that intro. Hey, it's all right. We all fumble the ball every once in a while. (laughs) Oh, gosh. I know I've had, I've had my fair share of, of dropping the ball so but anyways how have things been going I, not great i've been i've been sick for like two weeks and for the the first couple of days the first week or so like it was i was pretty bad i was out of it for you know a while mm-hmm. and lately i've just been coughing really bad oh man that it's sucks been, yeah it's been driving me crazy it's been like two weeks I don't know when it's going to finally go away. I should probably actually go see a doctor at this point because it's been so long. Yeah, that's probably wise. Um, Well, fair enough. Um, It's been two weeks since we last talked. So one question I have for you is, have you had any packaging that's come in? Because it should be coming in pretty soon if it hasn't. Oh, yeah, man. I forgot how long it's been. Yes, the packaging for the Kickstarter is in. Oh, sweet. Uh, I've even shipped a couple packages in it. Man, and I haven't it, seen that yet. I I am super happy with how it turned out. Scott did a great job on it. Um, the package is just a little bit bigger than my previous design, but it can fit way more carabiners just from like the least common denominator problem. Like mm-hmm. before I could only fit one on each layer of packaging and now I can fit uh, up to three. So I should be able to fit all of my orders in in these boxes here, which will save me a lot of um, money on shipping. And I don't have to have multiple size boxes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's awesome. I think they look really good. I, uh, I think we've talked a little bit about my packaging experience. Um, well, I really appreciated it and it looked really good. One, we are not um, designers, so they aren't the best looking thing, but they're decent. Um, and two, they, have issues on them. And I think that's just because it's a prototype run. Yeah. Well, and to be fair, mine was designed by a graphic designer. Yeah. Yeah. Which I'm totally going to have to steal at some day. If we ever redesign our boxes or anything else like that. Yep. Scott is there looking for work. I'm sure he'll take something. (laughs) So, well, let's see here. Um, our Etsy store. We'll talk about that a little bit. It's been doing really well. Um, I mean, obviously it's the holiday season, so it would be bad if it wasn't doing well. Um, but I mean, over the weekend we got like 14 orders, which for nice. us is a lot. So, yeah. so it's, uh, it's pretty cool. And it's funny cause it's, it's hmm? what are your big sellers in Etsy? That's what I was going to ask. I was going to say my, my biggest seller right now is, are challenge coins slash poker coins. Um, we've uh, we've sold over fifty of them um, in about two months. Um, okay, it's not bad at all. So, and um, they just seem to be picking up in volume 
more and more as time goes on. Um, and I, we get a lot of custom orders on that where people will send us mm-hmm. their own designs and things that they want on it. Um, in fact, we just opened up a new listing. Um, so before we had the standard coins, which um, have just a, a black mark on both sides for poker stuff. Um, we have our deep engraves, which we have some pirate coins, um, some kind of Aztec looking coins, some Glock coins, and those are kind of a deep engrave. And then we have our um, custom coins, which we do a black uh, mark. And with that black mark, we can do anything pretty much as long as it's in the right format. Um, Like we can do photos and stuff. We've had, oh, probably five or six people that have wanted a photo on one side and then something written on the other side. Um, And so that's been pretty fun. Um, And then we just opened up custom deep engraving so people want to do the deep engrave um then they can do that with whatever they want on it so and then eventually i'd like to get into doing we've done some 3d engraving on some coins and i'd like to do some more of that i'd like to experiment with that because i think if we can get that dialed in on the coins it'd be good but it's also good practice so we can start implementing it on some gun stuff as well so it's a process to get everything dialed in. We've got three lenses now, um, a 300 millimeter, a 175 and a 110. And so what you want to u- do when you're using that laser is you want to use the smallest lens that can fit whatever you're trying to use on it, because it'll give you the most power in the smallest area. And so um, we can go all the way from 12 inches to four inches, depending on which lens we're using um, for our area. And for the deep engraves on the coins, using that um, really small lens goes really fast. So those coins fit into that four inch square and it just is so much faster than going up to like 12 inches uh, and using the 300 millimeter lens. Yep. I actually, I need to see if, if we have, I don't think we posted anything to Instagram with it, but I have a video where it, it looks like the coins on fire um with that laser coming down on it with yeah. the 110 lens because it's just shooting sparks and everything everywhere it's it's really cool yeah that is cool um speaking of etsy i actually had scott the graphic designer we were just talking about come into the workshop uh the other day and he sat down and you know took new product photography of a lot of the products i needed to get on etsy and mm-hmm. made the etsy listings for me and you know did all that stuff so now I, you know, actually have more than one thing on my Etsy store. That's awesome. Um, which will hopefully, you know, pay itself off here pretty soon because, you know, I was getting pretty steady sales of that. Uh, the orange slice is the one thing I had on there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if I can, you know, quadruple that or quintuple that by with these other things, it would go a long way. Yep. Yep. That's what we're looking at right now. I mean, if I could get anywhere from $500 to $1,000 a month of basically passive income through Etsy, I would be phenomenal. It'd go a long ways to helping stuff out. Yeah. I mean, that's a machine payment right there or mortgage or. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, and it's, it's, you know, it's, it's one, it's one thing I always say it's, it's the little things aren't going to make or break us, but they grease the wheels. (laughs) 
So yeah. and I, cash flow is everything. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's our biggest problem is, is that we're starting to get into the point where we're taking on some bigger and bigger jobs and we have to have capital on hand to pay for the material up front so we can take on the bigger jobs. And then we're strapped for cash until we finish the job. And then it's like, oh, well, we finally got paid and we made some good money, but um, it didn't feel like it for a long time. So. But I think I think when as as the cash starts flowing a little better. It'll feel better as time goes on. So, um, and then let's see here last week you were sick and the end of my week was just awful. I mean, yeah, so let's, let's talk about that. What happened? So the job shop stuff has kind of dried up for right now. Um, I've been making a lot of phone calls and everyone's just kind of, they've got through their busy part and now everyone's waiting until next year. So, um, but the Christmas stuff and the gun stuff has picked up kind of flip-flopping. And so, um, we had a customer that came in who wanted an RMR cut. Normally we tell everyone that we want them to supply the site especially for a cut, an RMR cut on a gun slide that we haven't done before. And this was the very first time that we had someone who had had a gun that they wanted an RMR cut for, but they didn't have the RMR site when they, when we got the gun. And so we were like, okay, so I went online and I don't know what it is about companies that make, um, red dots. Um, for for guns and stuff but they do not have anywhere online where you can officially get the layout pattern for these things and there's a whole bunch of different people that have like measured it themselves and come up with their own dxf patterns that you can download and i tried one of those and it was close but it was not close at the same time um and so what I ended up having to do and why last week sucked was um, we drove 30 minutes to a company, uh, a local company that sells gun gun parts and had the type of RMR uh, It's a Trigicon, Trigicon RMR. Um, they had one of those red dots in stock. And so I would cut a test piece and I'd cut like four of them with different, you know, tolerances and whatnot. And I'd go down there and I'd go, Okay, that one doesn't fit. That one doesn't fit. That one doesn't fit. Okay, that one's pretty close. I'd go back and make a bunch of tweaks. And and like it was working, but I made four trips back and forth. Oh gosh. And on the final trip there, I I called up my my cousin and I was like, it's still not quite there yet to the way we want. And we just ended up buying it. <laughs> Probably should have started all- there. It was almost $700 oh, gosh. For, for that red dot, which is more expensive than the gun that we're putting it, mounting it to. Um, and Can so you return the red dot. No, oh. no. So our hope and our, our, and we're, and we're still kind of hoping, you know, not to put pressure on the customer. Um, but he hasn't bought one yet. Oh, well, here you go. <laughs> and, so, and so we're going to try and see if he will buy it. Um, um, 
and so we won't be out that money. Um, but if that doesn't happen, then what we'll probably end up doing is um, we have a couple other guns that we're working on, and I'd like to do some more um, gun shows. Um, mm-hmm. Apparently, we missed out on the one that was at um, on Black Friday, but apparently it was crazy. I was talking to another gun shop, and they said they sold over 100 guns. Wow. Or something like that. Gosh. I, I think it was I think it was a hundred, but I don't I don't don't quote me on that. Um, but they said it was just nuts. Everything was selling, um, and so that was the one gun show that um, I couldn't make and my cousin couldn't make because he we were both gone. And I was like, man, I wish we'd been there. But we've we haven't gone to a gun show and actually sold a gun yet. Um, Grant, we've only gone to two, um, and so. I'd like to go to some, even though we're offering services, there's a lot more people interested in buying guns. So if we can have yeah. some guns that we've done work to as kind of like a, Hey, we did the custom work for this they're for sale, but it's also an example of what we do. Um, I think that'll do well. So. Yeah. I, I would definitely try to go down that route and it, it, you run into the problem we were just talking about. It's, it's basically a cash flow problem where mm-hmm. you need, you're sitting there with, I don't know, $10,000 worth of just materials and a couple guns that you have in inventory. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, you know, I could see that that being a pretty profitable way of, of making money. And plus it's, um, it's just advertising for your other services. If you want to focus on those. Yep. Or maybe you find out that your, maybe you find out that your, market doesn't really support the custom services as much and you just become you know a custom gun maker a custom gun maker yeah yeah which that has a lot of advantages because then you're a product business not a service business yeah Mm -hmm. yeah and there's a lot of guys that are doing that kind of stuff so um and and it kind of makes sense um i was talking to one guy and he was saying that he puts basic he customizes stuff on a basic level, stuff that he knows he can get money out of. Like, you know, if he's looking at a gun and say that gun costs $400 and he can do uh, a service that costs him $30, but he can upcharge, you know, $60 for it, he'll do that. And then something that he could do that would cost $300 where he can only get like $300 out of it or less, you know, he won't do, but he'll tell people that he can do it to them if they sell it. And he does that as the service because then he can sell it at full price. Yeah. And, and that makes total sense. Um, and so I'd like to, I'd like to get some, some used guns that we can um, turn around, do some work to um, and then sell them and go from there. So. Yeah. But. That, that makes sense. And it's also a way that you could like start to define your style and like what you do is a, a business. Like you'll have this body of work, you know, if you're customizing your own product line, like you're going to do the things that you're the best at and people will see that and go, okay, these guys are the guys who do this. So let's, I need a, this done to a gun. So I'm going to go to and have them do it for me since they're clearly the experts. Yeah. Yeah. Although I will say we had both a negative and a positive today. Speaking of gun stuff, um, we had a gentleman who came and dropped off a gun to be, threaded uh, a barrel threading mm-hmm. and we had just run a gun very similar to that last week 
And so we had everything already set up for it. And we, we, we ran it in under an hour. Nice. And had it all done and ready to go. And the guy picked it up same day. And he was super happy and impressed. So um, it's it's one of those things that kind of builds on. The more we see stuff, the more we're kind of getting used to it and the faster we can go at it. Yeah. Um, and so it's it's nice to see some of that coming through uh, and like the interactions that we had today. Um, and then on the on the downside, we had another problem with our laser today again. Uh-oh. But we figured it out. So it's not completely uh-oh. So let me, let me walk you through this story. So <clears throat> we're doing a lot of tumbler engraving. And we have the, the, the fourth axis for our laser. And it is significantly slower than um, engraving on something that's not using the fourth axis. Because it's got to do a, it's got to engrave a line and then it ticks over. Engrave mm-hmm. a line, tick over, engrave a line, tick over. And it's just really, really slow. It's it's literally probably five times faster, if not more, um, not using the rotary versus using the rotary. And so that's one of the reasons we got the 300 millimeter lens is because the larger the lens goes, the more of an uneven surface you can go on and it can still be in focus and still cut. And so um, we had some... That, that order of 42 tumblers that I think we, we posted on our Instagram, we were able to do three out of those four operations without doing it on the fourth axis. And we mm-hmm. literally got the first three operations done um, in, in less time than it took us to do the one rotary operation, which oh was gosh. significantly smaller than the other yeah. three. Um, so that kind of gives you a, a little bit of idea of a perspective on that. and so. With that, when we did that tumbler, it was the smallest size tumbler, and we had the 300 millimeter lens, and we had it maxed out on our machine, like all the way as high as we could get our lens to go, and it just barely fit under it. And we have some more that we need to do that's larger. And so the tower that houses our laser um, is bolted to a base plate, and we machined some spacers on our lathe that are about two inches tall to go underneath that laser to raise it up some. Um, and we just did that recently. And then, so today my cousin was running some coins and we noticed that our dark engrave stopped working. Like it would start to work. It would work on the bottom and then it would start to taper off on the right hand side. And then by the time we got to the top, the whole image would be basically non-existent or really, really light. And it would it was kind of taper off at an angle. And so we kind of went down this rabbit hole where we thought that when we machined those spacers that maybe they were off. And so, you know, uh, we're trying to figure out what's going on. We're tearing stuff apart, putting it back together. The head on the laser it was tilted down because it's on like a gantry system and it's mm-hmm. on an arm that so it's got a it's got kind of a an X pattern where it can raise up and down and then your base is over here and so your head is hanging way out. Um, if, if for those of you who can't see, um, picture like a sky crane, 
that you see on buildings, like over buildings, something that kind of looks like that. And at the very end of it is the laser head that's over your whatever you're trying to engrave. Well, we stuck a level on it and it was tilted down. But when we removed the spacers and stuck it on the ground, it was tilted down still. And so we figured out that that was probably just the slack and the bearings for, mm-hmm. as it's traveling up and down. And so there's nothing we could really do there. But we went ahead and stuck some spacers and got it level. And that helped, but it didn't fix the issue. And so we were scratching our head, trying to mess with all this different stuff. Um, and it turns out that with the Galvo laser, you have those two mirrors in the head that are yep. rotating to, to do the image. At some point, some dust or something, it almost looked like a smudge got on one of those mirrors. Oh. And we cleaned it off. And now that it's kind of one of those blessing in disguises, we got one of the best coins I've ever seen off of that because we, we, we leveled the head perfectly to yep. the work to try to make sure that that wasn't the issue. But by, in doing so... It didn't fix the issue, but when we finally did fix the issue, the the black that came off of it was some of the best looking uh, black coins I've seen come off that machine. So it was one of those extreme frustrations, you know, spent a bunch of time, you know, wasted, but it ended up benefiting us, I think, in the long run. Yep. So, sorry, that was probably a long, drawn out story, (laughs) but... But anyways, it was, it was, uh, I was so glad we didn't have to send the machine back again. Yes. Because <laughs> that's what I was worried yeah. about. So, and Weston called tech support and, uh, they're like, oh, we'll get back to you in two to three days. And we're like, Ugh. you so, need a second laser. Yeah, we, we really, we really do. Um, and there's a job that, if we get, I'm I'm getting a second laser, um, and we ordered material last week, and it should come in this week for a couple test parts, and then once the customer sees those test parts, if he still likes them, then um, I'm, I think we got the job. So, and I I got to meet with him as well in person, so he he had a very interesting story, um, which I won't go into here, but uh, I enjoyed talking to him for about an hour. Uh, learning how he started his business. Um, short story is he came up with an idea for a product. He had another company in another state make it. He got a design. No, he he wanted a design patent, but he got a utility patent with the company that was making it. And then that company liked it so much that they wanted to hire him on. And he said no. And then they made it anyways. And so that bridge ended up getting burned and he moved all of his production back to Arkansas and, and he's doing a different product line that we're working on. Um, but he was just kind of telling me his, his company's history over the last few years. And it was, it was very interesting in the legality and having other people make your stuff business. So, (laughs) but anyways, that's kind of everything that I have had going on. What about you? I just had something on my head and I, oh, 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 I remember what it is. So a while ago, we talked about a customer you had that needed like large scale laser markings and how to do that. 
That's the same guy I'm talking about. Same guy? Okay. Okay. Is it for something large scale or like one of the large panels? Yeah, it's it's going to be like a like a almost nine by five panel, which nine inch by five inch or nine foot by five foot, not nine foot nine inch by five inch. I mean, it's big for our laser because our laser can only go up to twelve inches by squared, and we have to use the largest lens. We can't it can't won't fit under the the one seventy five. It has to be three hundred. Which I had a thought. Go ahead and thought on how you could do larger panels. Okay, for not an exorbitant amount of money mm-hmm. um there is this stuff called ceramark that will let you mark metals on a normal co2 laser mm-hmm. and i have i've never tried it before but theoretically if you had a panel that was like for example my laser is a 24 by 40 and it wasn't mm-hmm. that expensive so yeah. if you needed to do panels that size you could just use the ceramark stuff and it's not mm-hmm. as good as a fiber marking but it, it's it's fairly permanent Mm-hmm. so i don't know it was just an idea i had for you yeah we've thought about using that stuff because you can get it for aluminum as well because you can't laser mark aluminum um and so i've thought about trying it on aluminum and if i like it on aluminum and and here's the problem with why we haven't got a second fiber laser is because we want to get a big co2 laser um and to kind of have both capabilities in our own shop um because it would do a lot better at the tumbler stuff, I believe. Because the 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 fiber laser can remove the the cerakote of tumblers, but a CO two laser is better because CO two has is less prone to try to mark the metal underneath the cerakote. Yes, or, or the or the powder coat. So, um, so we've been looking. Yeah, you can at, get a CO two laser to mark tumblers for, I don't know, fourteen hundred dollars. Yeah. Yeah, but we want to get one that's a little bigger, more capable, um, yeah. something kind of like what you got. Um, and the the school has one that I teach at. Uh, it's also an OM Tech. It's a hundred watt, um, like two foot by three foot or three foot by four foot, something like that. It's um, probably about the same one as mine. Yeah, it's twenty four by forty. Yeah, something which I like believe that. is probably six hundred millimeters by a thousand millimeters. I think it's probably how it's spec. Yeah. So it's a nice one. Um, and there, it wasn't, I mean, it was cheaper than ours. So than our fiber laser. Um, but one, one interesting thing on this, on these plates um, that I just thought of. So when we did them, he wasn't sure that the customer wasn't sure if he wanted to do a black mark or if he wanted to do a deep engrave. Okay. And so we sent him two sample pieces and when we sent them, I thought he was going to for sure do the dark mark. Because when we when we did the, the deep etch, I'm going to be honest, it looked like crap. Like, it, it did not look good. It looked horrible. And I was like, there is no way he's going for this. Like, we're just going to do the dark mark, and that'll be that. A couple days goes by, and he calls us up when he gets the plates, and he goes you know, I think I'm going to go for the etch. And, and I was like, are you, are you sure? Are you, are you seeing the same part that I'm seeing? He's like, no, I think it looks really good. And he's like, I showed it to everyone in the shop and they all like the, the non dark Mark one better too. And I'm like, this guy's nuts. (laughs) And so 
I, I finally go and meet him in person and he brings those plates and it turns out, and they're both stainless, so I'm not sure exactly what effect is going on here. But somehow, and we did it by complete fluke, the etch tarnished in such a way mm. that it left like a bronze finished mixed with like a dark tan. Interesting. And, and, and you can tell where more heat was in there because it's mm -hmm. like bronze flashes because the laser the laser scanning back and forth, and when it stays in one area, it gets hotter in that area versus when it goes over and does a larger area, and it's sweeping, and so that combination of going in and out of smaller and larger areas with whatever settings we had at the time, um, was causing it going from like a gold, bronzeish color to like a tarnished, gray or something, and it actually looked really cool. Um, and is it I just temper no colors? Like if you're tempering a knife, you um no, you know you it's not the, those colors. Mm -mm. Huh? No, it was like a, it, it it was reminded me of like the Statue of Liberty kind of how it like how that copper tarnishes. Yeah. Well, if you're exposing um you know because stainless steel is a mix of a bunch of things and iron. And if you are exposing the iron atoms in there, those could still rust. Yeah. Because that's what like passive, uh, passivizing does, is mm -hmm. it just eats away all of the iron that's on the surface. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so, I don't know. That's interesting. Yeah, no, it was super weird. I have no idea how it happened. And... It's one of those things that we're going to have to get some samples in and we're going to have to play around with because that's what he so wants. So you can do it again. <laughs> yeah, so, so it's like we did this by complete accident with unknown scrapped stainless steel material um, that I just had lying around the shot. Can I get a repeatable process to produce this? Um, and can I use a lower power machine because now he wants a etch, not a mark. And my plan initially was to get a lower power machine just to mark this. But if he wants this etching, then I need to get another 80 watt or maybe even 100 watt and uh, to do this. Because I don't think a, a lower power machine is going to be able to do it with the larger lens. Yeah. Or just take a really long time. Yeah. Well, and I don't think it's going to get the same coloration. Oh, the coloration. Yeah. So could you like not fake it, but do something similar with um, by like Cerakoting in the letters or enameling in the letters? Uh, not make it look good and repeatable. And that'd be a lot more. I mean, this, this guy's wanting this for like single digit dollar amounts. So yeah, fair enough. <laughs> um, so there's, there's, there's no way I can get down that. Like I'm already I'm already having to do so much to try to because I want repeatable work. I'm doing a lot to try to fit it into something that I normally wouldn't be able to do. Um, and the only way I can do that is because of the volume that he's wanting. And because there's a lot of different things I'm going to try to do to automate it to where I don't have to stand in front of it. And then it's printing. It's like a printer at that point. And so I don't. I can justify charging less for it. Yeah. Though, so be careful about taking, you know, repeatable work that'll slowly drive you broke. 
Well, it won't. We'll be making money. Um, it's not like we'll be we'll be losing any money. Um, it's just that it's it's like I can make you know five dollars an hour doing that, or I could make you know fifty to a hundred dollars an hour doing other stuff on it. Um, and the five dollars an hour doesn't sound like much, but you know if it's forty hours of work of worth of work a week every week for a month or for, for, for not for a month for like a year that adds up versus the hundred dollars an hour is only in spits and spits and fits. And so, yeah. um, it's an ideal- opportunity cost game. Yeah, exactly. Is- so, you know, would you, would you rather have $5 an hour and get it, you know, for, uh, 80 hours a week? Let's just say you could get 80 hours out of that machine at $5 an hour or, you know, $100 an hour, but you don't know how many hours a week you're going to get yeah. out of it. <laughs> so yeah, that is the, the business calculus. Mm-hmm. It's all a trade off problem. Yeah. And so uh, I'd like to have my cake and eat it, too. <laughs> and so in an ideal world, I would uh, automate the machine where I could have something that I could stick on it and let it run during off hours and then yep. take that fixturing robot machine off and then use it like normal during the day. So I could just come in after over the night or a weekend to all of his stuff done and then use the laser for other stuff during the week <laughs> or have a second machine, which I'd like to do both. <laughs> Um, let's see. I did. I've been heavy into powder coating the last couple of days. That's what I've been working on. Um, trying to get these Kickstarter carabiners out. I did the first couple, and basically, so the first couple carabiners I did, I did a small batch of of like five or ten, and that one worked. And then I did another batch of five or ten, and that batch didn't work as well. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of had to go down a, a troubleshooting rabbit hole and. Basically, it just comes down to like scaling my process and the the process I had just didn't scale very well. Um, one of the big issues I was getting a powder buildup on my like little fixture that I used to hold the carabiners, which when I was doing onesie twosies, I basically just made new hooks every time I did one. So I never ran into that. Um, but, you know, that started to become a grounding issue with when I, you know, am in production mode. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I learned that I can basically just take a propane torch to my my little hanging hooks, and in you know three minutes I can clean those all off and then do another batch. So how's that work? If heat's what cures it, how does taking a propane torch clean them off? Uh, propane's a lot more heat. <laughs> so you're just so you're just powder coat. Powder coat is just a plastic. And if you apply the right amount of heat to the plastic, it melts. If you apply too much heat to the plastic, it burns. Gotcha. So you can just, gotcha. you know, at 1500 degrees or whatever a propane torch is, it just vaporizes off. Gotcha. That makes sense. I guess I, I did learn. I did learn that if you use the propane torch to remove powder coat from a carabiner that you uh, screwed up the powder coat job on, it changes the properties of the spring and you have to scrap that carabiner. I, <laughs> I had a batch that I screwed up. 
Um, <laughs> and I had, so I was like, eh, this is working really well on the hooks. I'm going to try it on the carabiners. And so I, I torched off like 10 carabiners and unfortunately had to throw all those in the scrap bin. But so how did it change it to make it more springy, less springy? Did it make it like, uh, where it was temp or where it was, uh, brittle? It seems to have softened the spring. So less springy. It was okay. easier to, to distort. I, I kneeled it. I, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that is unfortunately not an option. And if I screw up anymore, I'll just have to sandblast them off. Gotcha. But um, I found a good technique for, for sandblasting a bunch of carabiners at the same time. I took a, uh, a bucket. I have, I have a two gallon bucket and I cut a hole in the lid. And so when I'm sandblasting in prep for powder coating, I just dump a bunch of the, of the carabiners into that bucket and just like stick the sandblaster gun in there and run it for a couple minutes. And that's works yeah. super well. Nice. You don't um, have to have it quite as even as you do with like Cerakote. Mm-hmm. Like you just need some tooth and that's, that's worked well. Are you doing all, all of one color at a time or are you doing a, a run of one color and then switching and doing a different color in a, in a batch or. Yeah. I'm just working through the colors. Um, <coughs> sorry. My, my fixture will hold 24 carabiners mm-hmm. and the, I think the most popular color was orange and there's only 60 of them because I have so many colors. Okay. So even with the orange, that's only three batches that I have to do. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. So it's not bad. Um, wow. I did buy a second powder coat gun because I uh, all the colors get a color coat and then a clear coat over the color coat. And it's been just driving me insane to constantly switch colors. Um, it wastes a lot of powder every time you switch and it just, it takes a couple minutes and, you know, for every batch I was, you know, switching from color to clear to color to clear to color to clear. Um, so do you, do you cure the color and then spray it down for clear or do you spray it down with the color, spray it down with clear and then cure it all together? You, so, all right, this is my process. I, I hang the, the carabiners on my rack. I put the rack in the oven for two minutes, and that gets them to about 100 degrees, 120 degrees or so. Mm-hmm. I take them out of the oven. I spray them with the color coat. Mm-hmm. I put them back in the oven for another two minutes, which just starts to um, Hard. melt the, the powder. Like, it, it mm-hmm. starts to run and flow and cover. Uh, but it's not cured. So then I take them back out, and I spray with the clear coat, then they go back in the oven for an additional 14 minutes, and that's when they actually cure. Okay, that makes a whole lot more sense about why you would absolutely despise having yes. <laughs> two two separate guns. Or not having two separate guns. Yes. Yeah, because you have to, in two minutes, you have to change the color over. Yeah, yeah. That's just, no. Yeah, you you have to have two guns. Yeah. So, it also eliminates the risk of accidentally contaminating my clear coat with a color. Mm-hmm. It's like it by, when you're changing all the time, it would be really easy to get a little bit of color into your clear coat. And then when you, which you probably wouldn't notice when you're spraying it on the same color, but then when you go to change colors, you know, you might have a red on top of blue or something. Yeah. And it would look weird. Yeah. That makes sense. Okay. 
That's good. So how's, how's, uh, what's been your biggest takeaway? Cause this is probably the most amount of product you've produced at, of the same product in a given time. Oh yeah. Is by that, an order of magnitude. Yeah. Before this was the pry bars that I did 70 of. Yeah. So have you, have you learned a lot from going up in batch size? It's yeah. Things just don't scale. Like you would think that, that that's basically been the challenge of the carabiners is like, or all of my challenges have come down to, I thought this would scale. The process didn't scale. Yeah. Um, it happened for the, the machining. It happened for the powder coating. I'm sure it's going to happen on the shipping. <laughs> yeah. And, and see, that's probably a small example of something that I've, I've heard, but I've never understood until I've started getting to the larger back size batches of, of stuff is thinking about things in 10 X terms. Like mm-hmm. what would it take to 10 extra business? Um, and when I would always think about that question in the past, I would go, Oh, I'm just going to do 10 times the same amount of stuff I'm doing right now. But no, you have, it's like when you do 10 X, when you 10 X your business, like all the small annoyances that you just deal with on a daily basis, you just can't have and still 10 X your business. Like you have yes. to go through and fix all the little things. Cause the little things are the most important things as you start getting volume. Or there's new problems that present themselves that you haven't had to, to worry about before. Exactly. Like before this, before the carabiners, I never had to worry about tool life. You know, I was doing small batches in aluminum and tools would just last forever. Mm-hmm. Um, and in for the pry bars, just the way I had my feeds and speeds, they would just run until they broke. And so it's like, okay, I guess I'm going to change this tool now and I would just restart the program and be fine. But with the... With the carabiners, they the tool did not ever break. I I don't think I broke a single end mill during normal operations. Only when I was experimenting with stuff, but mm-hmm. they would slowly degrade and they would get worse and worse and worse until it made finishing the parts a nightmare or impossible. Mm-hmm. And so, like managing that became became a thing. Yeah, yeah. So what what is just out of curiosity? What is because you're using basically one tool for all of your carabiners, right? Yep. So what is your tool life on that tool? Like, like, have you figured out how many carabiners you can do with it? It um, was about four pallets. About four pallets. Um, which is about 80 carabiners. Okay. Um, the I did not count pallets per tool. What I did is I looked at the, the parts coming off. And because it was a pretty gradual slope, and this is what bit me at the beginning. It is, it, it did not go, you know, good carabiner, good carabiner, good carabiner, bad carabiner. It went, you know, okay, this onion skin's getting worse. This onion skin's getting worse. It's getting worse. It's getting worse. Oh, now it's really hard to remove. And there's, it, there was not a moment where it was like, now it is bad. It was a gradual decay. And so I would kind of keep an eye on the carabiners coming off to change them. Um, I think my coolant had a, a lot to do with that because at the beginning I was having issues with um, my coolant ring getting clogged up and eventually I got the, the filter on there. And so like that helped my tool life a lot. That's good. Um, so next question, um, is the onion skin the only problem that you have with, with, with as the tool degrades or is there any other area on your parts coming off? that are problematic as that tool degrades. It was really just the onion skin at the bottom was the only thing that 
was visibly different between them. The finishes on the walls were all perfectly fine, and it didn't matter anyway because it was getting sandblasted and then tumbled and then, in some cases, powder-coated. So could you not just have your tool go a little bit deeper to ensure that you never got onion skin and then it would last a lot longer? So I tried that. And this is actually something that I figured out um, in some of my earlier testing, like before I even went to production, is if you, as you push deeper down, the onion skin would kind of stretch around the tool. Because this was a feed mill. It didn't have sharp corners like a regular end mill. Mm. And... If you, as soon as you made a pocket underneath the carabiner, you would just push material into that pocket. If you made that pocket deeper, you would just push the material farther down and farther down and farther down and farther down. And eventually you'd end up with like, like you'd basically be deep drawing the material. And I think I had one carabiner where there was a solid like 16th of an inch of just material, you know, like a knife blade pointing straight down. Oh Titanium stretchy. So it, it, it stretched wild. down aggressively. Yeah. Hmm. Well, fair enough. Huh. Now, I, guess I did I would... do tests. I did test with a regular end mill. And the regular end mills do not have any of that same problem as the feed mills. But my tool life was really bad. Um, each have, tool have... was making it through a pallet and no more. Have you thought about a hybrid system by chance? Um, where I would start with a, a high feed mill and then go to a, a regular one. Yes, I tried that and I probably could have pursued this more than I did. I tried it once and the, the regular end mill immediately grabbed the carabiner. Cause at this point it's mostly air and not so much a lot of material, it immediately grabbed the carabiner and pulled it out of the fixture. Um, okay. And I don't know, it's one of those things where like it went wrong once and it scared me and I didn't try it again. Uh, it probably could have worked. The other thing that I could have done that somebody suggested when I was like basically done with the whole process is have two identical feed mills in my machine and rough with one and then come back and finish with the other one. And that probably would have saved me a lot of tools. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's a, that's another good idea. Yeah. But I, I was too late to that party. At that point, when someone told me that, and I was like, oh, you're a genius. I have like two pallets left. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, you're a thousand carabiners too late, buddy. But that's a really good idea. <laughs> well, we'll bookmark that for the next time. Yeah, exactly. And so. I plan on... On, on still making these. Um, I wanted to have more inventory left than I do, but because of all these issues, like I scrapped a lot of carabiners throughout this process. Like yeah, a lot. Yeah. That's usually how it goes. Um, like I, I find that the more stuff I make, the pickier I get, the easier yeah. it is to scrap things for stuff that I would, you know, in the past would go, ah, it's fine. Like now I'm like, no, it's not. <laughs> so, but yeah. that's just, that's just the, the evolution as you, uh, the more you do, the, the, the more you start to recognize things that can be prevented versus things that, um, aren't that big of a deal. So, but, but <laughs> I, I will have at least, I think, 
150 or 200 carabiners that I can put up for sale on Etsy after this. So okay. that's a pretty big one, I would say. Yeah. Um, yeah. Especially because is at least in terms of how I've done the like the math and how much money that you know we've made on these i've always included that extra inventory into the profit margin on the the kickstarter Mm -hmm. um so really there's and this is again just for internal accounting purposes but really basically after this there's free inventory that i have that is yeah um, been paid for been paid for yeah free money woohoo yeah so every one of those that gets sold it's just free money at that point you've already you've already expensed it out um, speaking of inventory, how do you determine the levels that you keep your inventories at for all your different stuff? Um, for a lot of it, I just kind of, you know, I, I know how many that I sell in a month or two or however long I want to go without, you know, making the parts. Um, most of my products are not expensive. The carabiners are probably the worst in terms of raw materials and they're like, four dollars or something like that um, mm-hmm. actually no i guess the trays would be the worst but so i just make you know a month or two of, at a time of them and it's it's not a big deal to keep extras um with things like the the carabiners where i have a bunch of colors of them i always keep the unfinished version around so like i always have a in general if i have a powder coated version of a product i also have a stone washed version of it and I would just make everything stone washed and then powder coat to order. That, that way, I don't sense. have to inventory, you know, twelve different colors of carabiners. Yeah, which is the problem with anodizing. Yeah. <laughs> if you want to sell anodized stuff, you can't have a whole bunch of unfinished ones laying around. Um, unless you do it yourself. Di- yeah, unless you do it yourself. Which um, we did have someone the other day who wanted uh, raw aluminum. Um, it wasn't a, a playing card case. It was a little dice defender cases mm-hmm. on um on Etsy. Although it is interesting, and I don't know how much of this you get, but we've started having a lot of people reaching out to us for custom stuff that we don't actually offer on our store through Etsy. Do you yeah, have people- I definitely saw that. I've definitely seen that. I haven't got anything lately, but I've seen it before. Um, yeah, or like weirdo trays like very custom trays back when i was selling a lot of trays mm-hmm. um a lot of people wanted really big trays like mm-hmm. bigger than my tormakin machine oh my yeah yeah we've had some people ask for some interesting things and uh we've told most people that we can do that kind of stuff it's it, i don't know i think we've only done the uh, a handful of things that actually have actually come out and actually they wanted, but um, we've had a lot of people that have requested stuff, which I appreciate. Um, yeah. The key I found with those is start with the price. Yeah. Is, is, mm-hmm. the, you know, they'll say, I want a custom tray that's 24 inches by 12 inches. And you'll go, okay, that's going to be at least like $600 just in aluminum. And they're going to go, okay, thank you very much. Goodbye. Yeah. Pretty much. Yep. Pretty much. Yeah, I I wish <laughs> I wish I could go back um, five years ago before everything got crazy and material like aluminum was dirt cheap compared to now and just make all the things in aluminum. 
and then sit on all that inventory? Not sit on all that inventory, but just it's less painful for mistakes. <laughs> so, you know, it's like, oh, I just scrapped, you know, 50 cents versus today. It's like, oh, that was like eight bucks plus my time. Yeah. Which yeah. I mean, I say eight bucks. It's eight bucks versus, you know, 50 cents. It's not like a huge deal, but it just eats you up inside slowly, you know, especially if you keep making the same mistake over and over again, which I do less of, but it does happen every once in a while where you go through like three hours and you've scrapped all the parts in three hours. Can't figure out what's going on. So like I had one part that I was making for a guy and it was out of a eight inch square block of aluminum that was an inch and a half thick. Um, Mm -hmm. And I bought one extra and I ended up needing it because I broke a tap off. Oh, and I was, it was on patience (laughs) and it was the last operation. Yeah. Um, and it comes back to us. It's my own dumb fault, but at the same time, it's so funny story on that one. There was when we first got our machine, we did the Titans of CNC class. And so uh-huh. our first 16 tools are Titan of CNC tools. And so in the drills and taps section of our tool list, it'll be like 910 drill tap, 10 uh, uh 1112 drill tap, uh 1314 drill tap, and they're kind of paired together. Yep. And um so it's like when I remove one drill and remove tap one tap, I just go up the next level and I do the same thing. Well, when I did that on this one, the right drill was already in there. And I decreased its size because I moved down two drills. Like I moved down both parts at the same time, but I was on the wrong side of the, the oh, pairing. Yeah. And, um, and so it was just one of those things where it's like, we had been drilling with that drill and, and tapping, but when I flipped it, I went the wrong way. Yeah. yeah anyway, and it was, I was so mad, so mad. <laughs> I, I drilled a hole that was too small for my tap and just destroyed my tap. So yep. that's always the worst. <laughs> yeah. I was so mad. Um, and it was the last operation and yeah. And then on the last two parts that I did, it had a bottom edge that was thicker than the top edge. And then that bottom edge, there was a piped hole that needed to get a MPT hole Mm -hmm. that was uh, tapped and it was on a taper. And that was actually my first thread milling was a tapered hole. Um, and, um, I did the first one correct. The second one, I was running that machine while running the lathe. So I was running two machines and then I was helping out someone else in between that was not paying attention. And I loaded the part 180 degrees wrong and Mm -hmm. tapped the hole in the thin portion of the metal instead of the thick. Um, Thankfully, the customer was like, we'll try it and I'll let you know if there's any problems. And I was like, okay, because I don't got any more material. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
So, um, I was kick my so mad about that one too. But it ended up working. It ended up being plenty strong. He didn't need the extra material because I also designed the parts um, for him. So I put that extra material in there because um, the parts that he was wanting me to mimic had it. And he's like, I'm not sure if I need that extra material, but throw it in there. I'm like, okay. So I was lucky in that sense because I don't think it actually needed it, but it was still mad that I put it in the wrong end. Threaded so. holes are the worst. Yeah. I, I find myself trying to avoid them more and more lately because the tape measures, <laughs> I just didn't have any room for threaded fasteners. Mm-hmm. which is why I went with the dowel system. And I think I'm going to have to redesign that to use threaded fasteners, unfortunately. What? Why? It's just, it's just not holding together? Um, it's holding together, but they, when you assemble them, there's no way to like cinch the seams closed. Um, um. And it also takes longer to assemble. And then also there's no repairability. Like if that thing breaks, um, or something simple happens. You know, let's say you somehow suck up a, a rock into your tape measure. There is mm-hmm. no way to take that thing apart without destroying the tape measure inside. Now, if you wanted to take it apart, you could take it apart with some with some heat, but it would melt the tape and you just have to replace the tape that's on the inside. So like every time you open it, it costs you six bucks with for a new tape measure. And I don't know. I guess it's not the end of the world, but. I want repairability to be a, a part of my products. Um, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. then I'm working uh, on a, um, like a razor knife now, like kind of like a box opener. Mm-hmm. And again, I just don't have room for threaded fasteners. I was able to get one in there, but I don't have room for a second one. <laughs> uh, so you're trying to figure out how to join, join everything together with one screw. Yes. Which, it in a perfect world, if the parts were perfectly flat, it wouldn't be a problem. But how so? keeping what? How so? Okay. You think once you think one screw could could keep everything together? Oh, in a perfect world where you have spherical cows and perfectly rigid parts, oh, okay. and nothing's rubber, yeah, it'll be perfect. But that's I guess if nothing's rubber, that's the big key um, there. Yeah, the problem is everything's rubber and nothing is flat. And so mm-hmm. I don't think that one screw is going to do it. And, yeah. and I just, I'm not sure where else to go. I mean, we could put in a, um, actually, I don't even know if there's room for like an A80 screw. Mm-hmm. There might be. Uh, I need to look at it again. I just haven't had time to finish that design. It, yeah. it could be that we could do it with some, some teeny tiny screws. But... Um, I may need to find an alternate method. Here's an idea. Could you dovetail the two halves together where they slide together and then the screw just keeps them from sliding from each other? That's possible. I thought about putting a like a, a dovetail type fixture on the end of the knife and then mm-hmm. like you pivot it down, kind of like a battery cover. And mm-hmm. just hold it down with that one screw. But actually, you might be able to just dovetail everything together. That would be pretty cool. Yeah. Um, so that you could dovetail the two halves together, and then the one screw is acting in shear instead of in... Uh, so it doesn't matter tension, if it loosens yeah. any or anything like that. I don't know. I might play with that design. Yeah. 
Just a thought. Yeah. I, I'm so out of time on like four different things that I need to do. Um, mostly machining time or excuse me, design time right now is what I am lacking time on. Um, so I, I have like this knife that I need to get out before the end of the month, um, which I, I just don't know if that's going to be possible right now. Mm. And then, um, Oh, what was the other thing? Oh, I need to finish the design for the, the design revisions to the tape measure. Cause ideally I would like to launch that tape measure on January 1st. Um, but that would mean I need to finish the design. Harrison here needs to machine it, laser engrave it. And then I need to send it off to my product photography guy who then sends me the pictures so that I can get the Kickstarter campaign made mm-hmm. all before, all before January 1st. And, yeah, I mean, technically, it might be possible right now, but yeah, I might be paying my machinist some expediting fees and my <laughs> some expediting fees. And <laughs> yeah, and I'm I'm leaving out on Wednesday through Friday for my brother's graduation in a different state. So uh, of this week, yeah. Oh, that's fine. I'm not going to have it done before then. Uh, I'm hoping to have the carabiner shipped. Oh, it might be really optimistic, but before the end of this week. And then I have some brain space and time space open to start working on these other projects. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking that we're going to get the uh, second batch of of uh, tape measures started maybe tomorrow. Okay. Oh, yeah. I forgot I ordered those. Um, would you... Can I pay you to do the design revisions to the tape measures? Yeah. Do you have the bandwidth for that? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Um, I'll I'll send you a PO. Um, <laughs> I just need them to be I need them to be quick and easy to put together and to you know look a little better. Okay. Get that seam a little bit smaller. Okay. Cool. That yeah, because I'm there's no way I'm going to get it done otherwise. Yeah, I understand. I've been there. <laughs> and then and then I'll work on the generative art side on my end. Yeah. Um, yeah, because the, the Make 100's coming up fast. Yep, January. Well, technically, I can launch any day in January. Yeah. However, you get the... Like, the majority of the people who are on Kickstarter looking for the Make 100 things, they are there on January 1st. So if you if you're gonna do a make one hundred to get the advantage of it being a make one hundred, you have to launch on January first. Now, do you have enough information to go ahead and do everything, or do you need? Um, because you've already got a batch of twenty five. Yes. So, um, machining wise, you should be good there for that, even if you make revisions, right? Or no? Or does it? Just depends on the type of revisions. So these 25 and the next 25, I'm going to sell on Etsy as a basically as a different product than these. The Kickstarter gotcha. ones will be a different revision. Um they'll you know look different because they'll have, you know, the they'll probably have some sort of threaded fastener in there. Um 
et cetera, et cetera. And they'll have the engraving. So the Kickstarter ones will be unique from the regular ones. Gotcha. Okay. Um, with that in mind, I'll have to get started on that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, all right. Yeah. Did you read um, The Critical Chain by uh, The Gold Dude? It's the Mm-mm. book club book for um, that other podcast with Intolerance. No, I haven't. Okay. I haven't. It was really good and made me realize it how bad I am at managing projects. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, this I, is something I'm... I thought I was good at until I had to do it all on my own. <laughs> yeah, I'm. I'm in a bit of project um stasis right now because we're stepping outside of our normal wheelhouse and doing some um bent sheet metal and so i'm machining the dies um for it because they're custom dies to make this part and it's really annoying because it was a we're making a replica of a part that was made in the 40s um i believe and because it's a replica and because in the 40s they didn't have CNC machines that made everything perfect. So their dies were probably hand cut or machined. Yep. Probably done on a scraper. Yeah. So or a shaper. Sorry, a shaper. So they want the imperfections from the old process in the replica. So I have to find a way to measure imperfect angles and sh- and corners and you know variable radiuses and random flats where so it's it's a, it's a part that's circular but it's like ovaled and and not quite a perfect circle and the yeah. dies the first set of dies that I made were perfect circles and I mean, they look great for what they are but the customers like Mm, that's too perfect. Like they need to be, they need to be defective to be a true replica. And it's like, this is making it infinitely harder. <laughs> yeah. So it's not just like on the surface finish of the bend. It's like the actual shape. Yes. Interesting. Can you just like bring a hammer to it? Like throw it in a forge, I re- I rack it with a hammer the, a couple times. I remachined the same dies that I already had made. Um, so thankfully I didn't have to remake them from scratch, but I still have, I still haven't pressed any parts in them yet because I do need to get some new parts from send cut send, but I didn't want to order four parts for $30. And so I was waiting for a larger order to come in and I think it just came in. So for these little, these little Oh yeah, the um, orange slices. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I think I'm gonna be piggybacking off that order. <laughs> yeah. I, I remember telling you that I wasn't out of the orange slices, but I was going through my inventory today and I was like, oh, I I just sent off my last brass one. I have two copper ones left. I have maybe five stainlesses and three oh, or my. four titaniums. It's like, oh, oh, I'm actually kind of low on those. <laughs> yeah. I think the Christmas I'll, rush has made my mental math not check out because I've been selling them faster. How do you keep your inventory? Do you just keep them in a box in the corner or do you actually have like an organized method for, for keeping up with it? Um, I have a while ago, I made a whole bunch of 
of, of boxes. They're plywood, just, just plywood boxes. They are designed so that they're eight and a half by 11 on the inside, just so they fit a piece of paper. Um, and I just have kind of a whole array of those and, you know, the different products get their own different boxes. Um, okay. I'll probably go to a Gridfinity system in the future because everything's Gridfinity right now. But I've used those boxes for, for years. Gotcha. Um, and then when you have them on Etsy, do you just put your maximum amount and when they run out, they run out? And is that how you keep up with your inventory? Yep. Um, if I have a something that I have a large number of, a lot of the time I'll do like my actual inventory minus one, just in case if, if I miscount, I don't oversell them. But yeah, when Etsy runs out, then I'm generally actually out of them. Gotcha. And do you, uh, does, does Etsy, and I don't know this because I honestly don't mess with the inventory side as much as my cousin does, um, but does Etsy give you like a low inventory warnings or can you set up low inventory warnings on Etsy? I don't think so. Um, it'll tell you when you're out. I don't know if it does a uh, like, hey, you're going to run out soon warning. Um, That'd be a really good feature I, for Etsy. It, it would be. I, I just keep an eye on it. The, the bigger problem, and this is what Etsy really needs to fix, is I have some products that I sell in sets or as individuals. So, for example, my meeples, I, sell, I'm, I just got those on Etsy, and they are in both a four-pack and a ten-pack. And, but there's no way to tell Etsy, like, hey, I have 20 meeples right now. Sell them either as four packs or as 10 packs. So, yeah. like, right now, I have two 10 packs listed and five four packs. And if I sell, you know, I could theoretically sell twice as many meeples as I have. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I had a similar problem with Etsy with, um, uh, a product we were making. Where it was a, uh, it was a box with a lid, but it wasn't the deck defenders. It was something else. Ooh, excuse me. Um, and you could get it in two different colors, and for the box or the lid. And if I was trying to fill out on Etsy that you know I had two different colors and I wanted you to select color A and color B. It would con- it would show you every possible combination that you had to have an inventory for it. And it's like, no, I just want to have an inventory for yep. <laughs> colors A and colors B, and then they can mix and match them however. And as long as I have column A has one separate inventory, column B has separate inventory. But it, it wouldn't yep. work. The only way you could really do it is if you had them as two different listings, and that would, I'm sure, confuse everyone. Yeah, though there is something to be said for having um, duplicate listings on Etsy because the more listings you have, the more chances of getting eyeballs. Uh, yeah, but but then you also have the issue of you have to keep cross you have to keep the inventories on multiple listings for for yes. one item. Yes, that is also a problem and something I have faced before because um, I'll have like so for example my key rings those are a good add on item for things like my orange slice. Mm-hmm. And so you have to keep inventories across the, you know, orange slices to the, mm-hmm. yeah. Which I do have the key rings now on Etsy, which used the, before when I was just buying them from China and reselling, they used to actually be a really good seller. 
And I'm hoping that'll maintain it now that I have, you know, ones that I'm making, well, ones that Send Cut Send is making for me. Yeah. So we'll yeah. see. Yeah, you you do really well with your uh your little items that you're getting from Send Cut Send. That's we were just talking about that today, me and my cousin, about how like we really need to get good at tumbling things because <laughs> Yes, because <laughs> you can get you can do a lot with uh, with uh, sheet metal if you cut it and different things. Yep. Um, um, for the copper orange slices, in the past I have had is- like I, my my soft jaws for them weren't weren't so great, and for the copper ones I just stopped machining them altogether and I just tumbled them for like three days. And it just rounded over the edges because, you know, copper's really soft. Mm-hmm. Um, they didn't look quite as good as having a nice real chamfer on there. But, I mean, it worked. Do you, uh, whenever you get any of your laser cut parts, I, I know you tumble them a lot, but do you have a belt sander where you touch the, the edges if you have flat edges? Does that make um, I don't do the edges, but I do the tabs. So all laser okay. cut parts have either a, a lead-in, lead-out mark, or if it's smaller than the um, point grid on the laser, they have a tab. And basically everything I make is small enough that it has a tab. So I clean those off with the, the belt grinder. Gotcha. Okay. That's fair. I wish there was a way to tell them where you wanted the tab. On some I mean, you can send. leave them a note. You can. Like... Yes, they have their automated process, but like there's still people making the parts. And so you just you leave a note. Um, one thing that I've learned to do is is ask for um, your parts to be thrown in a bag and not using their shrink wrap packaging because their shrink wrap mm-hmm. packaging when you have 80 orange slices, which you know are basically just the size of a, a large coin, like mm-hmm. it takes so long to cut those out of the packaging, but they'll just throw them in a bag for you. Oh, that's an interesting idea. I have to think. I'll, there's, yeah, I'll have to do that. Yeah, um, it'll, it'll save you a lot of time later on. Because there's a, not only for the orange slices, but there's another item we're looking to have done at Send Cut Send, and it's a smaller item. Um, and cutting hundreds of those out would suck. Yep. So, as for bags, I mean, think about the carabiners, like. What if they had tried to shrink wrap all of those carabiners? It would have taken me like two days to get them all cut out of their um, mm-hmm. their shrink. Although wrap it packaging. is a really cool shrink wrapping process, I I do like that it. Is. A lot. It's cool, and if your parts need the protection, it, it's great. Um, mm-hmm. If you have formed parts, if you have larger larger parts that need to stay flat, if you have aesthetic finishes, but I I do none of those things from Sense Get Send. So yeah. Yeah, it is funny though. Everything for fifteen percent off at checkout. Yeah, yeah. I need to get. I need to (laughs) use that code too. I'm trying to use that code. So, I think it still works. I tried to use it myself, and it. I I think it doesn't let me use it because it. They know that I'm me. Hmm. Um, but I think it works for other people still. I had to use Tyler Bell's discount code on the last thing I did because I couldn't use my own. (laughs) That's hilarious. 
So, let's see here. Was there anything else? Um, done a lot of Cerakoting on guns here recently. Nice. That's been going well. Um, and it's funny because th- there is a technique for everything out there. Yes. And um, the front dovetail sight on some of these guns mm-hmm. is a pain in the but to do to get it on and off because um, okay. you have to you have to hammer it in and you really need to use something that's brass so you don't damage it yep and then your brass parts that you're using to hammer it in get damaged and then they bend over and don't work yeah. so it's just really frustrating and i ended up using a the first time i used a non-brass punch to try to hammer it on and damage my Cerakote. So we had to strip it mm. and redo it. Redo it. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's some of those stuff. It's, it's, we're learning as time goes on, how to get better and better finishes and how to assemble and disassemble stuff a lot faster. Like I'm getting to the point where I can, I can strip a, a pistol and reassemble it in five, 10 minutes pretty easily. Um, Although there are still a few guns out there that have very annoying springs mm. that are a pain to get back in the right spot. A lot of these yep. guns are really well. <laughs> I I really like Glock, except for their... Um, so here, I'll... Glock and Smith & Wesson. I've done a decent amount of both of those at this point. Um, Glock, everything about it is amazing, except for um, the mag release. The mag release is a plastic part that has a metal bar that's going up and then you have to bend it over and pop it into a small hole and then it'll act Mm. as the spring to push it in and out. Yeah. And so you have to sit there with like a screwdriver or something reaching down into the mag well trying to pop it in and it's a pain. Versus the Smith & Wesson, they have theirs where you can take a little screwdriver on the side and it's got just a little flathead screwdriver that you can push in, twist it, and it's all self-contained in the, the mag release. You can pop it out of the way. And what's cool is because you can make it ambidextrous. You can flip that whole assembly mm, around, yep. stick it in from the other side. You go from a left hand versus right hand. It takes you two seconds. It's awesome. On the flip side, um, Glock, their trigger assembly, all of their springs are are contained in a way that you can disassemble it without any springs going anywhere and whenever you go to put in the pins you don't have to line up any springs it's all self-contained awesome on the smith and wesson the springs are typically um uh not compression uh, tension springs that have two loops and you have to bend you have to reach in there with a tool to pull one of those loops in over the pin that you're trying to push in so you need like yeah. four arms to try to hold yeah. everything in place while you're trying to push the pin through. And so they both have like things that I really like about them. And they both have things that I just despise with a passion. So it's, it's fun to kind of, as you work with more guns, figure out what you like, what you don't like, what brands do well with some things and what brands do well with others. Um, I totally understand. Like I've, I've always enjoyed working on stuff and I've always enjoyed guns, but I've never really worked on guns 
until now and it's i i'm really enjoying it it's a lot of fun yeah so well i think we should probably <coughs> cough some at the microphone i think we should probably wrap up yeah that's probably a good idea um thanks for uh everyone who's uh stayed listening to us rambling on um please subscribe and and tell all your friends about our podcast uh we we really appreciate it and those of you that have been listening and have been sending us messages i just want to let you know that i appreciate that and and i'm sure aj does as well but all the messages of uh, people listening to our podcast like i don't know if this happened to you slightly off topic as i'm kind of closing up here but like I'll randomly get like Instagram messages where someone will be replying as though they're listening to the yes. conversation <laughs> we're having. And it's like, they're, re- they're replying to something that I said, you know, several days ago or a week ago. And then I just have to like rewind in my mind and go, Oh yeah. Yeah. We are talking about this. Like, yep. Okay. Now I know, now I know where we're at, but like every once in a while, it's like, Okay, what 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 was I talking about? Like, what what is this person sending me? I am so confused. I so. have definitely had to re-listen to our episodes so that like I have the context when talking to somebody. Yeah, yeah, because you know, for them it's fresh in their mind, but for me it's like I had this conversation a while ago. Like, I need to yeah. rewind and remember what I said. Um, but it's a, it's a ton of fun, and I I really it. it makes me feel good whenever people reply back and I go, they're actually listening and responding to uh, something I said in the podcast. So those of you that have been listening and and sending me stuff, I greatly appreciate it. Um, So anyways, uh, this is me Harrison with uh, precision ingenuity signing out here with AJ from design the everything. Bye. Bye. (laughs)